1: Tenor Toby Spence, bass baritone Neil Davies, and stage director Gary Griffin are backstage at Lyric.
2: The thing that struck me in studying and learning and coming to terms with this new genre for me is, especially in the micado, um, it's a diamondine perfection. There isn't a
0: word that you would leave out. No. There isn't a thing that you would add to it. It's an incredibly well-crafted piece, and of course the, the combination of the music and this genius writing of Gilbert with the libretto that's why it's always done and it probably always will be done as well. The verbal dexterity that this
3: text and the lyrics have is something you know I I want to be as articulate and clever and smart as these characters and these writers so it's always a privilege to get to live in this world because for that bit of time you get to dance around in that universe.
1: Thank you for downloading this episode of Backstage at Lyric. I'm Roger Pines of Lyric Opera of Chicago. We'll be playing an audio transcript of the Lyric Opera Discovery Series session for what is probably the most popular operetta in the repertoire, Gilbert and Sullivan's The Mikado. For those of you who may not be aware of the Discovery Series, it's panel discussions featuring singers, conductors, directors, and opera experts. We do one session per opera, and they usually take place a few days prior to the opening of each production. The Discovery Series is open to the public, and it's a great way to get up close and personal with our artists. You can check out our website at lyricopera.org for dates, tickets, and complete Discovery Series information. We include all the Discovery Series sessions as part of the Backstage at Lyric podcast. The guest speakers for this session are three exceptionally intelligent and witty gentlemen who give all kinds of valuable insights into the Mikado. They are tenor Toby Spence. Who's debuting at Lyric as Nanki Poo, bass baritone Neil Davies, who's returning to the company as Coco, and Gary Griffin, who's directing the new Mikado production after debuting with the company directing last season's new production of The Merry Widow. I'm the moderator for this session. I hope you enjoy it. Good evening. I'm Roger Pines, dramaturg at Lyric Opera of Chicago. We're all going to have a great time for the next hour because we have these three brilliantly intelligent and exceptionally witty gentlemen with us from the Mikado. I will keep their bios brief because you can read them in our Mikado program and we do have a lot that we want to talk about this evening. So in alphabetical order, we have the Welsh-based baritone Neil Davies who is back at Lyric to portray Coco Uh, in the Mikado, which he recently sang at Arizona Opera opposite his Lyric Opera colleague Stephanie Blythe. His debut at Lyric was in another GNS role, the Major General in the Pirates of Penzance. Since he won the Leader Prize in the 1991 Cardiff Singer of the World competition, he sung a wide repertoire at the Edinburgh Festival, both Covent Garden and English National Opera, all the other major British opera companies, and the Berlin Staatsoper. He's appeared with many major orchestras, including those of Vienna, Amsterdam, Dresden, London, Manchester, Oslo, and Cleveland, as well as with all of the world's leading original instrument ensembles. Our new Mikado is being directed by Gary Griffin, who is Associate Artistic Director of the Chicago Shakespeare Theatre, and he debuted at Lyric in last season's new Mary Widow. This season, he's also directing As You Like It at Chicago Shakespeare, Lost in the Stars, for City Center, Encores in New York, and Camelot at the Stratford Shakespeare Festival. He has won great praise for four Chicago productions of musicals by Stephen Sondheim, including Pacific Overtures, which won an Olivier Award when it was remounted in London. Among his other major productions have been The Color Purple on Broadway, My Fair Lady at Chicago's Court Theater, which I hope a lot of you saw. One of the great things I've ever seen in Chicago. Productions for San Diego's Old Globe and Connecticut's Goodspeed Opera House. We have a major debut in the Mikado, and that is of English tenor Toby Spence. He is singing the role of Nanki Poo. He has sung six leading roles at London's English National Opera and five at Covent Garden. One of his signature roles is Tom Rakewell in The Rake's Progress, which has brought him to many companies, including those of London, Paris, Vienna, and Madrid. He's also appeared at Gleinborn, the Châtelet in Paris, leading companies of Munich, Brussels, Amsterdam, and Berlin, and at The Met, where he sang Laertes in last season's new production of Hamlet. He can be seen on DVDs in important uh, Baroque opera productions, Les Boréades from Salzburg, Hercules from Aix-en-Provence, and The Return of Ulysses from Amsterdam. So please join me in welcoming to the Discovery Series Neil Davies, Gary Griffin, and Toby Spence. Uh, I'm sure that for at least 100 years not a day has gone by when the Mikado hasn't been produced somewhere in the world. I mean, it's done in every kind of venue, by every kind of performer. So how do the three of you account for that, considering that it really is a pretty difficult piece
3: to bring off in the theater? It's infectiously entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> I, it is... It is um, I, I, I think if you spend time with it, I, I defy you not to be entertained and engaged by it. It's, the, the, the score is fantastic and clever and smart and beautiful, and uh, it rhythmically gets in your soul, and uh, the humor is timeless.
0: I think it also has, I think on a, on, a, on a very sort of superficial level, the reason why a lot of people s- start singing GNS when they're at high school, I mean, I know no, I certainly did, is that on a on a sort of basic level, it's it's musically not desperately difficult or, or complicated to get a to get a grip on, but I think like all sort of deceptively simple music and and text, it that is a deception because when you start to really look into it, then you realise what a, an amazingly well crafted piece it is, not only musically with with so many references from. Other grand nineteenth-century opera that's going on, which is sometimes parodied, um, sometimes just sort of comes in as a beautiful counter-melody, uh, unexpectedly in the orchestra. It's an incredibly well-crafted piece, and of course the the combination of the music and this genius writing of, of Gilbert in in with the libretto. Um, I mean, I think that's that's why it's always done, and it probably always will be done as well.
2: I agree. (laughs) (laughs) But no, the the thing thing that struck me in studying and learning and coming to terms with this new genre for me is, especially in the Mikado, it's a diamantine perfection. There isn't a word that you would leave out. There isn't a thing that you would add to it. It is absolutely perfect. It is exquisitely crafted. The thing that I'm really taken with is their grasp on the class system that we have Mm. in Great Britain, which is what a a lot of their their oeuvre um, tackle in terms of sending up in satire. Um, But they do it so well and so clearly, almost with an outsider's eye. I think if you are British, it's quite difficult to understand how the class system operates because we're all caught up (laughs) in it. Um, And somehow Gilbert especially managed to get outside... The system and look at it as an out, with an outsider's view but with an insider's knowledge mm. um, and, and translate that to Japan. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Fascinatingly. <laughs> <me. laughs> if you were going to name one quality of this piece that grabbed you and made you actually want to be a part of it, was it a particular musical number? Was it? Uh, was it the words more than the music that, that got you interested or was it a production of it that you had seen before that you remembered and you said, oh, I want to try that?
2: I'm embarrassed to say that I got involved with this because there are lots of people who really like Gilbert and Sullivan and who admire it that I admire and I couldn't understand What it was (laughs) than it (laughs) might about Gil Sullivan. That's true. I know. That's really true. And I knew that the only reason, the the only way I could sort of understand it, was to get inside it. And so, hand on heart, that's why I'm here. Also, uh, Chicago um, asked me to do it some time ago, and they asked me to for these dates before anybody else. (laughs) So (laughs) (laughs) that's a large part of it. I'm, I'm often
3: first drawn to anything by the language and the lyrics, mm. particularly in music theatre of any kind. Lyrics tend to get my attention first. And writers who are as smart and clever, and, and the verbal dexterity that this text and the lyrics have, is something, you know, I, I want to be as articulate and clever and smart as these characters and these writers. So it's always a privilege to get to live in this world because for that bit of time, you get to dance around in that universe. And uh, and I think that I've always been drawn, I've, I've drawn to Noel Coward and Tom Stoppard for the same reasons, uh, because getting to live in their world and think and your mind, to tune your mind to that to that rate of thought, and the, the way the characters use language to stay in the game and keep up with each other is is dazzling. So that always is my way in and was my way into this material. It's um, When we were doing Pacific Overtures, there's a Gilbert and Sullivan parody in that piece, and I went back to listen to Pirates, because it's a it's a parody basically of the major general, and ended up spending the entire day listening to pirates <laughs> because it's that thing you can't. It's what I said about the infectiousness of it. You can't put it down. Uh, Mark Thompson, the designer, and I played. Here's a how do you do how to do over and over and over just because we oh, that's delightful. It's short. Do it again. <laughs> and we it's pleasure. Gary, which number is it in Pacific Overtures that's the GNS parody? It's the British admiral in. Uh, in please hello and he comes in to say hello i come with letters from her majesty victoria who learning how you're trading now saying hallelujah gloria and sent me to p- convey to you her positive euphoria as well as little gifts from britain's various emporia
0: <laughs> Bravo! <laughs> <right>. well
3: done. <laughs> but well you, but you can't once you learn it no, no, exactly. <laughs> it's there uh, yeah how long did it take at, you at 5am after five glasses of wine
0: i can it's still so do it yeah. probably better <laughs> You do never forget these. I mean, you no, never you can Yeah, The, um, no, no. the, the patter things particularly. And I think with, I mean, the reason I love the role of Coco is he's one of those very few opera characters. Papageno is, is another one who is allowed to talk to the audience and to get a direct rapport. And having done many, many opera productions with mainly theatre directors who won't let you look at the audience because of that fourth wall, the joy of being able to go down the front and say well, you know, <laughs> is, is fantastic because you get that reaction. You get, you, people don't expect somebody to come out of the proscenium and, and talk to them and confide in them and Coco does this from the minute he comes on stage and it's, it's also, I think, one of the few Gilbert and Sullivan roles that doesn't sort of peter out as it goes on. It gets better as it goes on. Absolutely. And it absolutely. builds, and the end of the second act is one of the best set of comic numbers you, you'll you get, and mm-hmm. some of the best scenes you'll get in any comic opera, I think. So it's an obvious choice to say yes to. You it, think really. they all peter out? I was thinking, <laughs> well, I was thinking so Jack
1: Point and uh, the Major Yelmer General. The, Guard. the
0: Major General certainly. Oh, yes, he does, out. absolutely. Captain Corcoran. Peter's out. Mm-hmm. I mean they they do tend to. I mean in a way. I mean Nanki-Poo sort of Peter's out a bit as it, as it goes on. I you totally disagree. But, <laughs> but I, I absolutely disagree. Um, but I do too. uh Coco's one of those who 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 just gets. He goes to his apotheosis at the end which is um, which is a great treat.
1: Neil you were saying before how you, you know you never forget the stuff. Do you remember your topical words for the the major general?
0: Absolutely and and Sir Andrew and I gave a rendition of them in unison uh, about a week and a half ago because we could remember them so uh, oh. yeah can,
1: can you favor us with a few lines of it I'm, I was trying because I was trying to remember because it was what, so brilliant
0: the extraverse um, the, e- the verse. The oh well there's a story behind the of the because when uh, you probably know because you're all devoted lyric patrons that, that a production of Benvenuti Cellini was cancelled for budgetary reasons and Pirates was was put on instead and there were lots of eyebrows raised about replacing Benvenuti Cellini with Pirates of Penzance. So Sir Andrew and I came up with this extra verse, which was... If the presence of the British makes you fear a motive sinister, we long ago concluded you're impossible to administer. Recolonizing's out, although I've heard a lot of silly noise about the possibility of just retaking (laughs) Illinois. Instead, we're here to offer with respect and with humility a slice of British culture in this marvellous facility. You're saddled with the kind of debt of gratitude one rarely owes. Mm, Rarely owes, rarely owes, rarely owes. (gasps) But damn it! After all, we're just a substitute for Barleyos. So they oh. We're just a substitute, and uh, that was the reaction. Everybody loved it, so it was. Uh, <laughs> so you really don't forget it. <laughs> that's seven. That's seven years on, and a whole load of that's other techs and librettos going in one year and you know. So, now,
1: um, yeah. Neil and Toby, you know, we all assume in this country that every British singer grows up with GNS, which. I mean, is that that is not a fair assumption, is it?
2: Or... Well, no, I didn't. It, I, did I, kids, I yeah. was in a a school production of the Mikado when I was sixteen, but that is my only exposure. Playing to... Nanki-Poo? No, no, in the chorus, um, and that 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 was it. That's as far as it goes. I,
1: I... Did you listen Purist. to
2: it at
0: all, or <laughs> no? <laughs> no. No, I um, did grow up with it. I must say. I, 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 I we we would do a, a school production every year and I started in the chorus of Gore, and then did um, one of the gondoliers in, I can't remember whether it was Marco Giuseppe or whoever the baritone is in gondoliers and I was second yeoman in Yeoman of the Guard and then finally in my last year I did Coco. So, uh, and that was the only time I'd done Coco until two years ago, so. did But did, all the jokes are the same anyway. So did fine. this
1: repertoire make an impression on you one way or the other? Oh, huge.
0: I love it. I mean, it, it it passed into, you know, everyday speech in my family at home. I mean, people would people would sit down and watch something and say, what do you think of that on television? And my mother will sit there and sort of go, modified rapture, or, you know, and yet he fled, and those sort of lines, which it just became part of our everyday vocabulary. <laughs> and every concert we did at school or whatever, I'd be singing Beauty and the Bellow of the Blast with some six form mezzo or tit willow and all of those things. So... Yeah, it, it was.
1: It always amazes me. I mean, this piece and all of the other well-known pieces of GNS are s- such completely unified works where the, these two minds are working in such great sync. However, Gary, they didn't really. Th-
3: their working relationship was really problematic, wasn't no, it? No, and particularly the writing of this piece. I mean, mm-hmm. this was actually a piece that they had, they had effectively sort of broken up, and this piece brought them back to writing together. But I think it. it Though I think it's ref- the work reflects two people who had very different sensibilities. I think about theater, what they wanted to create, and brought out the best in each other. And I think it's it's it may have been torturous for them to work together, but what they what they wrought was so beautiful for the rest of us that it was worth it. Uh, but yes, if you've seen the film Topsy Turvy, I don't know how many of you've seen that. It's a good it's a good uh, um, it's a very good film and a great. Um, I think expression of their relationship and what creative partnerships often are like, especially um, to really strong-minded, very smart, very, very, uh, very different points of view about how to work, and yet when they're when they're matched well, they create beautiful material. If some of you have not
1: seen Topsy Turvy. Then, by all means, go rent it immediately. I mean, it's mm-hmm. revelatory about yeah. who they are, mm. how they yes. behaved, how they dealt with their colleagues, yes. and also it it introduces you to personalities that we don't really have any sense of at all. That is, these singers who created these roles. I mean, mm. the Coco. What was he? The Coco was a drug addict, and Yum Yum was. was an alcoholic or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Was that yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Grosmith was. I mean, right. was, was yeah. a, you know. Used to have the silver syringe and...
1: But do you remember the story about the... Was it the Mikado's aria? And they were going to take it out mm. and then the... Wasn't that it? Yeah, it was yeah. going to be
0: cut. It yeah. was going
1: to be cut and then mm. the, the company practically went on strike until they, re, they inserted the aria back at their mm. insistence. I love that. Well, how did it happen, Gary, to be Japan? How did they choose to? Well,
3: there was uh, in Knightsbridge. There was a Japanese exposition, and uh, well, two, there are two stories. One is, is it, I'm trying to remember now if it was Gilbert. Uh, he had a, an, a what is effectively an executioner's sword in his study, and it fell off the wall, and he thought, oh, that that he took that as a sign, and then at the same time he was quite taken with the beauty of an ex- of this exposition that was going on and thought oh that's a, cuz if you really look the, the plots and basic characters of all the outputs are pretty much the same so they changed they changed the context and uh, and it's also thirty years past Commodore Perry, so Japan and the, Japan has been opening to the West, and and you know the trade and has been happening uh, with Britain. So you know there was there was it was a new world. So it was quite a lot of new discovery to present a Japanese story was also very fresh and original.
0: I mean, there was a mania for yeah Japanese things, but Japanese lacquer and mm-hmm. silks and porcelain. I mean anybody. You know, that the the audience who would go and see these performances were the the sort of society who would collect these things and had the money to to buy these things, and they were absolutely mad for it. So were they appealing to the same audience, or were they sending it up? They were... I think they were appealing to the audience and then sending them up. (laughs) (laughs) Probably, yes, both.
1: But in this text, there's... they're essentially satirizing all sorts of British institutions. What are some of them who sort of have a hard time? Well, the royal family,
0: of course. Politicians. Politicians, yes. The
3: church. um, Also, I mean... Pretty pretty much all government bureaus are (laughs) one. The the poobah is is essentially a send-up of... Of
0: offices, um, I mean petty bureaucracy. Yeah, right. I mean everything: the civil service, the foreign office. Everything gets is up is fair game for being lampooned, really. It's hard being English. You have to understand
2: this. It's, it's a very small island, as you all know, and uh, it, 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 we, our our identity has to be understood from the point of view of, of a sort of compressed society that doesn't get out very much. <laughs> <you know? laughs> so, so we've got our own little ways, and they stay our own little ways. And and, yeah. and they get that, Gilbert and Sullivan. Well, in fact, I mean, so there, well.
0: there was uh, only a couple of months ago. There was one of the one of the top big hitting political journalists was interviewing the. The, the former Deputy Prime Minister, Peter Mandelson, on, on the radio, and he referred to him as a modern day Pooh Bar. Mm. And Peter Mandelson, true to form, said, Who's Pooh Bar? Yeah. And of course, there were, there were letters in the Times by the dozen the next morning. Because this is a guy who was, you know, brought back into government in the House of Lords. He wasn't elected and ended, basically ended up running the country with, with no mandate. And, and was minister for this and minister for that and, and really was a modern day poo bar. But the ar- terrible irony is that he didn't know the reference. So. <laughs>
1: Speaking of which, um, are the, I wanted to ask all three of you, are there any references in this libretto spoken by the two of you or by any other character that you would consider obscure enough so that you would want to let our audience know what they were about any sort of well, re- re- the
2: darwinism reference at the mm-hmm. beginning that you have that, yes. that that Puba has um, that he can trace yes. his his ancestry back to a, a, a little globule he says protoplasmic uh, protoplasmic yeah. Go- yes. Yes. globule um, and that was, the, it was written in 1889? Yeah, 86, yeah. Right. Um, and Darwin's theories were only just sort of finding yeah. sway at that stage. He published pub- pub- posthumously, didn't he? Mm. And it took a long time for his, for his writings to sort of hold sway with, with public consciousness. And it was apparently on the first night, it got that tiny little joke, got the biggest laugh. Oh, really? Mm. Really? Yeah. Is that Yeah. So good, yeah. Does anything there, else occur to you? That well, you
0: there, think there are. I mean, obviously, the, the famous list song has been updated in many, many productions, and we have a few surprises up our sleeve, which I won't. Uh, Don't. Yes. I won't bore you with at the moment. But I mean, there are there are references that that are a little bit time specific in in the original. To, I mean, for example, the lady novelist. Well, I mean, of course, now nobody thinks anything about lady novelists, but at the time it was a it was a novelty, and and. um the, um, the idea of the, you know, the lady from the provinces who dresses like a guy and it's not like a guy being a man it's a guy because on the 5th of November we stuff this guy and burn it mm. on a bonfire so it's, right. that's the reference is these people it's badly dressed sort of lumpy country girls who come to London for the season and don't know how to dance that's, that's what the reference is um, so again the whole sort of class system and the sort of you know, people looking down their nose at people and all of that There's the reference to the parliamentary train as well. The the Mikado makes a reference to people who who are tied to a buffer of a parliamentary train, which was a, a very cheap penny ride, but it was a stopping service that stopped at every single stop. So it enabled people to travel, but they traveled in discomfort and it took ages. I mean, it would have been a joke that they would have got, which... I mean, now needs a bit of explanation, but but actually, the amazing thing is is, is how fresh it is. Mm-hmm. There, there are very few references that that, that you think.
2: Airy persiflage.
0: Airy persiflage mm-hmm. is wonderful. I had to look that up. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but thank, but you they, the, thank you for mentioning dresses like a guy. I had always wondered about yeah. that.
0: Yeah, it's not you do with the man. It's it's the yeah. guy. It's the guy that we right. burn for Guy Fawkes. Sure. You know, right. um, on the fifth of November. So right. it's. Uh, yeah. It is
3: actually in the book you, you gave me, that you, you turned me on to, though, Roger. It's in the annotated. There's a m- fabulous annotated Gilbert and Sullivan book that Roger shared with me some time back that has, which is, you you know, after the play, after you see it, we'll take, take but it. But you know, there's the, the great, are you were talking yeah. about
0: the night the um, Japan exhibition in Knightsbridge. Mm-hmm. There is, of course, the reference when the Mikado asks Coco, if Nanki Poo's disappeared and gone abroad, where's he gone to? Oh, and, right. and, and Coco says, um, Knightsbridge. Which, of course, they would have loved, because everybody would have been to see the Japan exhibition. Of course, that doesn't translate anymore, so we we're, tr- we're trying strategy. We're trying different. We're, yeah. I
1: Change wanted that. to make sure to ask Toby and Neil both about the vocal element of their roles, which isn't often talked about in G&S, because as you were saying before, it's basically fairly straightforward to sing. But both of you are Handel singers, Yes, and your yes. Mozart singers,
2: yes, yes,
1: are both of them together pretty good preparation to sing this.
2: Well, um, the demands of of Handel, I've said this before, that you know, every role in Mozart and, and Handel II has its own demands. It sort of demands a, a specific voice. They always wrote for specific people and wrote to their strengths. Mm. Um, so if you're a Mozart singer, what you're actually doing is is taking on on Lots of different voices. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'll do a few of the, the, I'll do Tamino, which is a very different voice from, say, Ferrando. And so when you come to Nanki Poo, uh, which is quite a low role for a tenor, um, it's, uh, Yes, the discipline that you get from learning to sing like you know, a Mozartian does help. Um, a sense of line very much helps, because the model for a lot of what he sings is, is bel canto. Okay. Um, and, uh, yeah, I would say to, to any singer that the best discipline they can get um, f- to learn the art of singing is from the likes of Handel and Mozart. Yeah. So, yes, in that very simplistic level it does help
0: i think also there's there's a, i mean particularly with with handle because there's so much handle repertoire in written in english it's 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 that it's getting into the habit of of making english an understandable singing language i mean we hear so many singers and what we as singers refer to singing in singalese which mm-hmm. is you know, some sort of mangled Modified d- d- yeah, R m- vowels. <laughs> modified Italian at R vowels when they're singing English. And you can't get away with that when you're singing Messiah or or any of the, the great Handel oratorios that are in, in in English and declaiming restative in English. It it demands a great deal of clarity. And, in fact, when I came here originally to sing the Major General, I the, the, Sir Andrew cast me as the Major General because we had just done... Uh, uh, some performances of Handel's Susanna together with the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment, and from that he thought, "Oh, well, he's very—you know—he's very good at singing English. We'll get him singing in the Major General." So, yeah, it does have an d- actual direct he created a monster uh, <laughs> correlation between um, between the two. Well, the wonderful
1: thing about th- this whole cast, but especially with the uh, the three British singers, because we have Toby, we have Neil and we have Andrew Shore who is our puba is the pleasure that all of them, at least this is my sense, that all of them seem to take in shaping English text. Mm-hmm. It's just, it gives you as an audience member the greatest joy just to, to hear your
2: language treated with this incredible elegance, it's amazing. It is, that's for me been, been a great pleasure in, in this because I have to say that I haven't really had to grapple with so much text before in terms of dialogue spoken dialogue and um, it's been a great pleasure working with Gary who comes from the theater mm. um, who's who's shown us you know different ways of of inflecting things or taking things to the sarcastic side or something <laughs> like that which has been delightful sort yeah. of milking it for That's humor yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really <laughs> yeah. i didn't know that it, did no
3: it's 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 it, uh, and and i have to say conversely that it's uh, to get to work on this text with with uh, with artists who uh, I, I, I you know when you when you when we cast these we have no idea you know what this will be like and what what the personalities will bring to the project I mean you know how talented they are and you know you know uh, that they're cast well but what will be the you know what will be the, the chemistry of that and uh, it has been. I think it has because of the sensibility of the, the artists and their and the way they they treat the language, and under and of course understand the language, but also are able to theatricalize it. It's more than just saying the words, and saying them well. It's it's being able to make the ideas in the language travel, because it's a big space and yeah. it's a, and the show is a big idea, and so it's and so that that I think. It's privilege to get to hear the text in this way and that and 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 really these are these are primarily noted, what we may know of as singers who can really act and really really present and make the language travel, which is not easy to do and there's a lot of dialogue and oh, I think it's dialogue. but it's it's um it's different from traditional, I, I work in music theater, and a traditional book musical, the way book scenes work, what we call book scenes in the, in the musical theater, they generally are very um, thin and economic. They're there to give you basic plot, to give you character, to give you some flavor, but they're there to create the connective tissue between larger musical moments. These t- dialogue scenes have their own character, and the, and the, the plot is in them, and they're, they're and they. Uh, they they have somewhat they have some music hall flavor to them at times because there are routines in them but they they really hold their own and I think I'm excited one of the things I'm most looking forward to in getting an audience and is to play the scenes in front of them because I think I think they're going to be delightful.
1: When you say music hall routines,
3: can you give us an example? Well, there are there are you know there's scenes with the poobah, particularly where he inhabits the different offices, and and there's a point where he and Neil have a scene where where it's it's really very much like a like two musical characters yeah. you know going on off on a routine. Well, let me talk to this officer. Well, then I'll move over here so he can't hear you. When it's all played by the same man, um, those and and those are routines generally you don't go you don't do in music theater. You know that, that would that would be musicalized in a song. But the fact that they they really have an... it's, it's one of the things too. I, I think they're un, uh, they don't categorize well. I, I think G and S are their own thing. Um, they they I don't think I don't like to call them traditional operetta because they really aren't. Well, the British but, don't even refer to them yeah. as operetta generally, do they? They're always referred to as operas,
1: correct?
0: I don't know <laughs> what I mean, it, it depends. I think it, it it depends. I think it depends on, in how much respect you hold them. Yes, I think they can be. I think people who who dismiss them I think mistakenly will dismiss them as just being operators whatever that means but I think people who n- really know them and respect them respect their their, their qualities and, and their greatness right I
2: think they're so unique they sit in a genre of their, they're a genre own. Of their own. I exactly think honestly people just refer to them as GNS
0: yeah and I mean this piece particularly I mean it has it has a couple of numbers which I think will stand up in Against any of the great 19th century opera numbers. I mean, The Sun Who's Rays, The Yum Yum Maria, and mm-hmm. the the great Katisha scene, The Alone and Yet Alive. And the first act finale, I mean, too. Which the, I, the first act yes, finale. But then alongside Amazing. that, you do get, as you say, music hall. Num- mm-hmm. I mean, The Mikado's entrance song is a plain music hall number. Mm-hmm. I mean, Coco's List yeah, is, yeah. is a music hall number. Mm-hmm. And then you get these sort of dueling dialogue scenes between. Um, but Nanki Poo and Coco and Coco and Poo Bar, which are, you know, it, it, it's like a comic routine. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's like a Morkman Wise. And whether you know Morkman Wise, you yeah. know, the uh, English, do, you know, double act. I mean, no. It's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, there, I'm sure they are American equivalents. But, I mean, it, it's, uh, you know, it, it's that sort of, it's an amazing mixture of, yeah, and it, it really works is. together. Yeah. You don't sort of feel that you're being slapped in the face by one thing and then. Yeah. No, they sneak a lot books. of plot into that. Oh, so, so you're amount. having
3: these pleasurable scenes, but you're actually, there's a lot of plot being yeah. woven into them. Yeah. It's incredibly clever.
1: Since we were talking about the, the dialogue before, uh, Neil and Toby, let me just ask, what, what steps, what process do you have to go through to project your dialogue into a theater the size of the Civic Opera House?
2: Well, it's... Uh, I you see, I, this is where I have to rely on people like Gary and my colleagues around me who know more about what they're doing than I do. <laughs> um, so I watch them, and the thing that strikes me is um, a, an energy uh, on stage, but also an energy behind the voice, mm. which carries through the sentence so that you get to the end of the sentence and you carry the energy to the end. And that way... Yeah. The sense is carried through. But if you tail off like we do in speech towards the end of the sentence... Yes, know. exactly.
0: <laughs> I mean, there is there is a de- there is a degree of, of um, micing in the dialogue, only in the dialogue, only. which will just help it. I think when we did uh, Pirates here seven years ago, there was no micing for the dialogue. But Pirates, compared with Mikado, is a dialogue-light show. Um, it's a, these, shorter show it? a shorter show generally. It's a shorter show generally, but, but the, the dialogue scenes are not... Uh, the dialogue is not as good in, in Pirates as it is in Mikado. And um I think the way I mean I have you know, a lot of dialogue in this and I try and project it in the same way as I would if I was singing it. So I try and make it you know, you, you support the voice as much in the dialogue as you do if you're if you're singing. And actually the demands of the of the dialogue in my role are greater than the demands of the, of, the, of the singing so for me the emphasis is, is on supporting the voice mm-hmm. in the dialogue and avoiding the temptation to get it in a very sort of squeaky place which just sort of Oh I do that all the time <laughs> which just <laughs> constricts the throat you have to sort of think you have to sort of halfway through a huge scene think just remember you are a singer take a proper breath and support the damn voice you know don't mm-hmm. just sort of well, well, go into character mode because it's very dangerous in a house this size
1: but there's this great revelation, Neil, of hearing you in, I mean, I remember from Pirates in, in that role, and then hearing you now, in that you're hearing these roles, these comic baritone roles, sung by a beautiful voice, which is not generally the case. And <laughs> it makes—and so the music, the music in those roles becomes very much more hmm. vivid. Well,
0: it's extraordinary how they, they actually write the vocal part for, for Coco, and... I mean, I I sort of look at it and I think, how does something? Because there's that famous Jonathan Miller production when Eric Idle plays Coco, which you've probably seen on DVD. It was not a singer at all, but I mean, the role of Coco actually has a two-octave range. In the in the 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 criminal cried, he's down on a bottom G, and in the finales, Sullivan writes him singing singing the tenor line up on top G's. Which I must say I cop out on, but I mean, um, it's you know there's a two octave range and there's real singing, and if you approach it as a, you know <laughs> as a singer, then there's proper proper singing involved in it.
2: Yeah, stop picking up your partner. now. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, honestly,
1: I wanted to ask the three of you if you have a favorite line of dialogue, whether it's spoken by you or spoken by somebody else, where you just. Can't get over it.
2: A lot of Poo Bar's lines,
0: yeah,
1: are beautifully yeah. timed. The bars are
2: um, yeah, and I just ad- adore the the dialogue that, that that I have in the middle of the first act with Yum Yum, which is basically the flirting uh, yes, scene yes. where yes. they get it together. And that for me is a prime example of, of not a word loose. It's mm-hmm. just so well written, and every time we do it in rehearsal, it's just I look for, I relish it. It's, it's, it's just it such a pleasure to do, um, and it. Honest, honestly, um, it speaks itself. You don't really have to. It's a sort of scene that, when you watch it, you think, "Gosh, they're such good actors," but it's not the case at all. <laughs> it, it, it's so well written; it does the acting for you. It's exquisite. I
0: love that 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 little corner. Neil, Gary. I have two favourite lines. One of which is one of Toby's lines, which is modified. Yeah, it's rapture. mine too. I have to say. This <laughs> And my of favorite. my own, my favourite line is "And yet he fled." <laughs> I just think it's it's just. I mean, in the face of this sort of extraordinary, can you give us the context that is, of that of that line? Catterick uh, is is saying, "I may have a plain face, but I have this wonderful shoulder blade and a, and a left elbow. And as for my circulation, it is the largest in the world." And I look at the audience and go, "And yet he fled." It's it's <laughs> it, it's just it's perfection. It's. Uh, just brilliant.
3: No, and I too. It's it's a lot of Poobah's lines. No, Poobah's d- are it's, wonderful, here. Yeah. it's it's partly... The, yeah, I know. It's, it's, you're also... Bah's set up in a way that you're waiting mm. for what's going to happen with him. It's, it's, it's also brilliantly constructed in that you're waiting to see what his reaction will mm. be to anything.
0: He's one of those characters who sort of pricks the... He, he pricks the bubble of whatever has been mm-hmm. set up so it never descends into, into sentimentality or, 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 or any sort of self-languishing. He always comes in and puts in the smart one-liner at the end and, and you realise you're back in the real world. You're not in some sort of
1: um, fantasy
0: we, operetta world.
1: As we go through the piece, how do you give... I guess three-dimensionality is the best way of putting it, to nanki Poo to Coco, without sort of overburdening them with a substance
2: that isn't necessarily there. I think in the case of, of Nanki-Pu, I think his story speaks for himself. He is obviously a character of substance um, and that he's willing to sort of assume a disguise in order to preserve his own existence. Um, and even if there is a, an element of the coward in him, <laughs> um, but, but he's he's also a romantic, and um, a very open-hearted youth, and I think any of those elements that you take and the way he's 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 written as well, it's very you don't have to sort of push, you don't have to layer on character, it's all there mm, it all already there. in the yeah.
0: story and in the writing. It's the same with it's the same with Coco. I mean, it's it's a brilliantly written role. I mean, you do have to sort of accept the fact that there are. There are scenes when he you know he's he's a different he changes from from one scene I mean mm-hmm. that's part oh, of his yeah, yeah. sort of slightly manic crazy because he's because he's playing a role throughout the whole piece I mean you know he is this cheap tailor who's been in prison who suddenly you know rules the world so he has that slightly sort of schizophrenic um, element to his character anyway so it's quite it's quite possible to play a scene in one way and then suddenly just change it and and to be somebody different he, he doesn't sort of um, He doesn't hark back to what's been going on. It's it's sort of, it's always moving on, moving on, because literally his life depends on it. He lives by his wits. He He lives by his wits, yeah, exactly.
1: Um, Gary, I've heard you really wax eloquent on the subject (laughs) of Kadishah. It's actually (laughs) Sir Andrew Davis's favorite character in the opera, I think. Um, What do you see in her that makes her something beyond sort of the... I mean, the, the Gilbert and Sullivan contraltos frequently have basically one dimension to them, yes. and she is a little more complicated.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Well, she she is a woman scorned, and so she she's come to claim her lover at the end of the first act. And really, what always what always sort of amazes me about the piece is, you have this thought that oh, you could actually sort of end it. You know, it's almost tied up. He mentioned her, but we don't know that she's coming back. And then she comes in, and it's—it's it's all of a sudden it's Greek drama. This <laughs> this, you know, character like Cassandra is comes in throwing down lightning bolts, and she kicks the piece into another dimension that tells you why you have to come back after intermission, to see what's going to happen with this woman, um, and and I think it's incredibly brave to have waited. That late to introduce her, I can't imagine writers today writing for the theater that would mm-hmm. think you could you could you could take an audience to that point and then mm-hmm. put your major antagonist arriving right before the interval, and and then and then the and then in the second act is all informed by how she's shaped you know her how her presence has now thrown the piece into into this other place, and she has. It, 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 and she, she's—we see her sing of, of 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 loneliness and having given up on love, and maybe she's unworthy of love. And then at the end, can be convinced that it's possible in a very simple story that Coco tells her. And I—and I, well, and Stephanie's an extraordinary force of nature. You're you're in for a treat to get to be with her in this piece. It's been it's been just a a, a joy to watch her create this role. And it—it's a brave—it's brave in the writing, it's brave in the execution, and I think that's one of the things you don't think of Gilbert and Sullivan that way—that this was this was—you know—we think of entertaining, but something that's that—and she goes and she takes it to dangerous dimensions.
1: What actually transpires in the scene between Coco and Katasha? I mean, he—he he has to woo her. To save his, his life. Son, yes. Yeah. So how does he do it, and how did how did Gilbert and Sullivan make it happen?
3: It's your moment.
0: Well, I think <laughs> with, with an incredibly simple, moving little song. I mean, Tit Willow. It's it's an incredibly beautiful, very when you look at it, a very very silly song with a very silly text, but it's 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 so beautifully written, and I I really do find it very moving to. To sing, I think it's, um, and and her reaction at the end of it, it's, it's mm-hmm. it's it, it, it sort of, it reaffirms your belief in in humanity that yeah. this this sort of rather, I mean, it, you know, she she can be perceived as being rather a sort of stock villainess sort of character, mm-hmm. but her own music is so very moving, and the moving and then the music, I think that sequence, you know, from her monologue and then Tit Willow and then into the great. Comic duet at the end, the Beauty and the Bell of the Blast. It's a wonderful sort of emotional journey that they, that they go on. And, and you know, of course, there, there's, a, there's a great tradition, particularly in, in British humour, of these very formidable women. Having these very sort of little timid men in their in their wakes, we made a whole government
2: like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: I mean, <laughs> but uh, yeah, absolutely. But I mean, there's the whole sort of seaside tradition of you know seaside postcards of these sort of large ladies in bathing suits with these puny <laughs> little men, and and and, it, and that's a continuance. And and anyone who knows the, the Carry On films, I mean, with with Hattie Jakes and Kenneth Williams, it's the. I mean, that's the image I always. Have when I in doing those Cattisha Coco scenes, it's Hattie Jakes and Kenneth Williams in, you know, Carry On Nurse or something like that. It's 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 this sort of formidable woman who is prepared to be wooed and goes all weak at the knees for this weedy little man, and mm-hmm. and likewise he's very prepared to be dominated by. It. I'm sure somebody could write some great Freudian thesis about it, but you know, it is, there's a, it's a great comic tradition of that, and and they. I suppose, maybe with the originators of it. I mean, yeah, I don't probably, know. But yeah. uh, mm-hmm. I'm sure Shakespeare came up with it somewhere. Yeah. But, I mean, it's... Uh... It's also... It's also he, he knows exactly the right
3: buttons to push in her, though, which is what I think is yeah. so amazing yeah. In the moment, is her belief that hearts do not break. And he says, well, wait a minute. I have a story. Yes. And, and he keeps it off the nose and lets her sort of come to him, which is so lovely yeah. about it. Yeah.
1: There's one major character that we have said very little about, and that is the title role, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. Mikado. What do we know? We don't really know much about him, do we? And does he get enough of a chance to sort of... Because he doesn't come on until beginning middle of Act at, Two. So toward
3: the middle Act Middle, act. almost, of act almost of act yeah, middle of Act Two. two. Yeah.
1: So what... Do we get enough time with him for him to really establish himself?
2: Gary, <laughs> that's a good question. No,
3: I think I think we do. I I think uh, again, it's another thing where you need to raise the stakes of the piece, and so uh, in cat and actually he is a he actually is an extension of Catershaw's need. She brings him there to to make to get what she wants. So she he's really connected to her need. So he's more used by her. But I think um, he's. Uh, it, it, it again. It, it his presence now. Coco. Coco now has to has to really pull out the stops to save his life and perform for him, which is again, you know, he sets up his, his his his. I'm a more humane Mikado, and I, you know, the punishment will fit the crime, and so he's now got to come in and and try to save his life in front of him, and fails at that moment. <laughs> but uh, it's it's. I think it's, um, it's, it's also just knowing the climate that he represents of w- what, why this play is about potential beheading, what the laws are, how he's... We, 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 we eventually need to see the man behind that thought, and I think that's why he's brought in where he is. But he really wouldn't work dramatically until that point, I mean, yeah. it's really... It wouldn't make any sense, it's kind of dramatically in the perfect spot.
1: We haven't mentioned very much about what this production is actually going to look like. First of all, what are the two of you going to be wearing? His
2: hair. (laughs) New hair. I'm going to have bright... Well, I haven't really seen my hair, so I don't really know what what colour it is. It was done this afternoon. Um, And I understand it's orange. (laughs) I can tell by your rather concerned mothering look over there that it is, in fact, orange. Um, So, uh, we'll... It's not really Japanese. The set, mm-hmm. you will be left, in no doubt, is Japanese-inspired. Um, and the costumes are, am I right in thinking, 1922 mm-hmm. English. They, they
3: uh, they're, uh, What we did was, it's sort of what we thought, thought the writing was felt to Mark, and Mark Thompson, the designer, and I actually spent most of our time when we were preparing the show listening to it. We spent a lot of time in the studio just listening to what what the music what was evocative for us. And it felt, as Mark kept saying, delicately Japanese. But, it, so a lot, particularly in the female costumes, a lot of them have are, are 20 silhouette but with Japanese fabrics and, and uh, graphic. Um, but it's not uh, what I think we didn't respond to was were versions we had seen that were very garishly Japanese mm. and didn't seem to reflect the what we were what we were learning from the characters and what what and Toby re- refers to was how do you somehow reflect the class system within this this culture so what we what we did conceptually was imagine that if we moved it to nineteen to the twenties this could be a Japan that has now been Western influenced, so it retains um, its uh, the spirit and the silhouette, you know, the, the the kind of the texture and look, but now has embraced a Western mm. look and a Western Western design, and 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 now we're you know so we, we, it was conceptually what what would what would what would a Japanese people have done had they been to or, or had an exposition come to Tokyo, and and in sort of the inversion of what the original concept did.
1: How much are you using what we associate as the what we think of as the standard movement you know with the fan and the kneeling and all of this whole not this much whole...
3: <laughs> no no, because it, again it started it, it for us was fun to think away from that. we know what you know fans you know we see fans flicking all night, we know what that is It was like well now we're we have we have we do have parasols and. And the men have umbrellas and and satchels, and uh, that the, the props reflect a, a little more of that culture than doing a lot of fan flicking Japan. So, what sort of
1: stage business um, are what? What's going to be going on between people? That's very sort of specifically 1920s. That wouldn't be part of a standard Mikado. Well,
3: the women, you know, when they're out playing, they're, they have they have uh, they have ice cream and uh, yo-yos and hockey sticks and the three and, little
1: uh, maids from school are yeah. playing with yo-yos. No, they,
3: they don't actually. No, they they so. have they have uh, parasols, but the other the the female chorus, who've uh, been let out from school of that, and uh, so yeah, we. Um, it's yes, it was more more twenties inspired in terms of its props. So we we you know, we've kind of got into what we what I think again we were. We were careful. We didn't want to look like we were making fun of anyone, you know, culturally by doing it. it fun of,
2: you know. Just to clarify, that's Yo-Yos the toy, not the. Yeah, the. Yeah, the, <laughs> <laughs> yes, the toy.
1: so so Toby, the costume that goes with the hair is. Wildly multicolored um, yeah it is I don't
2: want to I don't want to spoil it Not really yeah, oh, yeah, I think okay, I think it'd be a shame to spoil it but it's yeah. a, it's a
0: great costume
1: <laughs> <laughs> And Neil you have a just a business suit or
0: oh uh, no I don't have a business uh. suit I think no. it, what is great is, is that Coco's past as a tailor is very much reflected in his in his costume so there's not i mean you know traditionally he would come on with a giant axe or a sword there's there's none of that there's there's more tape measures and sample books and fantastic tailoring i mean he's referred to as a cheap tailor but i don't think any cheap tailor made this costume it's really beautiful um yeah he's obviously you know with his position he he feels he wants to push the boat out and, and his his past as, as a tailor comes, comes through in this absolutely stunning costume. I do have uh, a particularly hideous toupee, which I've just tried on. So um, that's, that's a lot of comic potential yeah. there, I think. So. <laughs> um,
1: I wanted to diverge for a moment from the Mikado, because there is a piece that was composed by Sullivan, with words by I don't remember whom, but not by Gilbert, and it
0: It,
1: it fulfilled his dream of writing a grand opera, a serious grand opera, and it was called Ivanhoe. And the two of you sang major roles in a recent recording of this piece. Mm. Uh, Toby, you were Ivanhoe, and Neil, you were Richard the Lionheart. And I got a hold of the recording, and I was amazed by, I mean, in fact I played we have a 16 hour radiothon where we you know, raise a lot of money and I played both of your arias yeah, right. and, because I thought they were so beautiful that I thought our listeners to WFMT should hear them and so what can you tell us about your experience with that piece, I mean is it a piece that you think should have a, a, you know, more of a performance history than it does
2: oh, that I couldn't <laughs> say um, it's fairly stodgy in terms of the, the text, yeah. um, and it's really, it really is, it's not dated well. The years have not been right. kind to that piece. Um, but nonetheless, there is some beautiful music. It was very much uh, Sullivan's sort of baby, that one. And some of it, it really, it's a, it's a, a very lyrical and, and beautifully
0: written and orchestrated very piece. He- I mean, very heavily orchestrated, mm. a big orchestra. I mean, a real sort of... You know, proto-Wagnerian orchestra,
2: and that's where you really get where it, the, the, his sense of vocal line is so evident. Mm. Um, it's really singable, beautifully um, melodic, really yeah. lovely stuff. Arcing but but completely hamstrung
0: by the libretto. I mean, it 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 was it was hugely successful when it was written. I think it had the the single longest run of any newly composed opera in London at the time. I mean when it was up against things like, you know, Lucia and whatever, you know, was, was coming out of Italy. It was hugely popular. But of course it, it 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 rode on the back of that mania for Walter Scott and and all things gothic and Scottish that Queen Victoria started. And you know, of course, you know, the Waverley novels were were the, the, the great sensation of the of the mid to late nineteenth century and it was you know with Donizetti taking up Lucia di Laamore And it, 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 it all seems a bit sort of creaky and a bit. And I'm afraid once you've seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail and Spam a Lot, you can't really sit through Ivanhoe and take it seriously because you, <laughs> the yeah, idea true. of the men in tights and, and it's, you know, yeah. it, 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 it's not. I, I don't think it will ever get a, a, a professional.
2: Staging. Maybe in Japan. <laughs> maybe where they won't be able to make head or tail of the text. <laughs> it's it's well, I recommend
1: the recording just so you can hear their aria.
0: But of course the, the problem was we did it solely as a recording. We never did a performance mm-hmm. of it, which was 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 a shame, but um so we didn't really get a full idea of the of the span of the piece because we were doing it in bleeding chunks, you know, for a recording. So
1: well, I'm sure all of us would like to know from all three of you if you know, not today, not tomorrow, but eventually you would like to come back into GNS and try another of the pieces. And if you do, which one do you think you would like to try and why?
2: Well, I would do uh, uh, this isn't the answer you're looking for, but I would do Nanki Poo in a heartbeat again. Um, and uh, I've heard that Frederick is a very nice role um, in The Pirates of Penzance. Um, so.
1: Maybe. There are two tenors in Princess Ida. You have your pick. They're both wonderful roles.
3: Okay, great.
2: <laughs> that, that too. <laughs> I'll do that as well.
1: Neil, I, I, well, go
3: ahead. I would love to do pirates. I would love to do pirates. Yeah, I think it's it's um, uh, music again. It's musically beautiful, and I and uh, and it, it's a it's a different. Uh, I think there's, a, there's just potential for a different kind of mischief in that piece that would be fun to explore.
0: I would like to do uh, Gore again and be promoted from singing second baritone to singing uh, that fantastic nightmare aria in Gore, And also Jack Point, because it's, it's, in sad, of the guard. it's sad, and he dies at the end, and, it, and it, he gets that wonderful yeah. I Have a Song to Sing, oh which is so beautiful. Like okay.
1: the only comic baritone in GNS who has a death scene. I yeah, he does.
0: Well, it's left in the, he falls insensible
1: ah, at the end. Ah, okay.
0: <laughs> Just like his older well, falls insensible at well, the end,
1: <laughs> These three gentlemen have a piano run-through to a uh, deal with tomorrow, so uh, we need to let them go. So thank you so much. Uh, you. Gary Griffin, thank you. Neil Davies, Toby thank Spence. You.
2: Thank, you. thank you. You've been listening to Backstage at Lyric the podcast that takes you behind the curtain at Lyric Opera of Chicago. For additional interactive content and to order tickets, visit us online
0: at lyricopera.org.